Have you ever wondered why your favorite taco is costing you an arm and a leg these days? Or is your dream couch still in backorder status for months now? Join us as we go behind the scenes of the global supply chain. Let us discuss and understand its complexity and learn from the industry leaders, professionals, and subject matter experts. Expect in-depth analysis and genuine conversations about the major issues affecting the supply chain today. Welcome to Supply Chain Demystified. Your host is none other than the distinguished supply chain expert, Dr. Nick Viaz. Professor Viaz is the academic director of USC Marshall Global Supply Chain Management and founding executive director of USC Marshall Randall R. Kendrick Global Supply Chain Institute. Dear all, welcome to Supply Chain Demystified. Uh, our podcast that goes beneath the surface to understand the nature of supply chain and how supply chain works globally. Today, I'm so happy to talk to you about maritime industry. COVID truly exposed the importance of supply chain. And I think we learned tremendous amount of insights of how supply chain have become a critical part of how we live, how we move, and how we shape our lives every day. None of those things can happen if it's not for goods moving from point A to point B to point C. And ultimately, a big piece of that is what gets moved from point A to B over the water. And what that ties, the transportation of goods moving on the water, what is known as the maritime industry. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of maritime industry. So geopolitical scenarios in 2022, pandemic-related constraints, the maritime industry has gone through some major transformation. Here in Los Angeles, Long Beach, if you remember those days where we had about over 100 vessels just queued up, ready to be unloaded. Those constraints occurred globally. Uh, so today, I think we will talk about the importance of maritime industries, understanding how does the maritime industry operate and what are the key factors that make them successful and keeps the humanity truly uh, in existence. In this exciting episode of Supply Chain Demystified, we'll discuss other trends as well, the supply chain collaboration, the green transition, the technology, the digital transformations we see security, of course, and the cost of energy. To talk about all of these things, I am so delighted that our guest speaker, who has over 20 plus years of experience in the container shipping industry, his professional experience includes the combined eight years as the director of driving and building out the market intelligence and analysis for Maersk Line, Maersk Logistics, and container ship company. He has been an independent strategic analyst, advisor, and thought leader in the container shipping industry since 2011, with the clients including container lines, ports, terminal universities, and innovative digital and IT shipping startups. Apart from maritime industry, he worked with oil and gas industry, specifically on technological innovation uh, and modeling. Our speaker holds PhD in complex theoretical physics from the University of Copenhagen, 
as well as the graduate diploma in business administration and leadership from London School of Business. Without further ado, please join me in welcoming Lars Jensen, the founder and CEO of uh, Vespucci Maritime. Did I pronounce Vespucci Lars correctly? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me here. All right. Thanks for being part of this podcast. So as I mentioned in my opening statement, supply chain demystify truly is to take the complex subject of supply chain and truly demystify so that everyone can relate to it, everyone can understand, and they really have a straight talk about the issue that we're going to talk about it. So let's talk about shipping industry and consumer insight. Let's start with the Europe, right? Tell me what's going on and where are we? Um, I think the easiest part would be to be very boring and say life is normal, <laughs> which it clearly does not appear when you look out. We still have some elements of supply chain disruptions. You still have cargo that is delayed. You will certainly find people that are shipping goods still paying a lot more than what they did previous uh, to the pandemic. But when I look at it from a global perspective, before we dive further into the details, globally, the world is now normal. Now, there's a caveat to that, because we have been so used the last two years to these extreme disruptions. So it's easy to fall down to a myth that normal equals stable and predictable. It doesn't. Maybe to set the stage a little bit, let's forget about the pandemic here for a second and look at what did the world of supply chain, especially on the maritime part, look like in 2017, 18, and 19. It was a world where freight rates would sometimes double. They would sometimes fall to half of what they were. It was a world where sometimes vessels would arrive on time 95% of the time. Sometimes it would be 25% of the time. That is normal. Part of the normal was sometimes the shipping lines would just cancel sailings and tell their customers, sorry, oh, your cargo will have to wait. Sometimes the customers would tell the carrier, well, I'm not going to live up to my contract because I got a cheaper deal with somebody else. This was all normal. So when I say the world is back to normal now, it's back to that level of normality because normal was never stable, was never predictable. Well, that's brilliant. So you define the state of normalcy as being unpredictable, uh, unstable, and full of variability. Yes. And this also shows where the great value is here. When we talk in supply chain, I'm specifically coming from the point of view of the container shipping part of, of the supply chain. And the great strength, which was also invisible prior to the pandemic, was its agility and resilience. The pandemic was, of course, a disruption much larger than anything that we had seen before. No doubt about that. But large-scale disruptions were not unheard of. Just to take a few simple examples, the financial crisis a bit over a decade ago, the impact that had on demand flows was every bit as large as the pandemic. Then in terms of other examples, if you look at early 2015, you were mentioning it yourself. You had these 100 vessels lying in queue off the California coast. Go back to 2015. You had 40 vessels lying in queue because there was a labor dispute. This is not unheard of. 
the level of reliability back then went to the same depths as we saw during the pandemic. 2016, you had the world's seventh largest carrier go bankrupt overnight. 2017, you had the world's very largest carrier, Musk, be completely off-grid for a week due to a cyber attack. And on top of that, ports that are closed due to weather, due to strikes, due to accidents, is fairly normal. It's par for the course. Most people, let's say when you go down to the local supermarket, would never know that because the supply chain is extremely versatile given these normal disruptions. You can take the world's largest container line, cargo will still flow. You can take some of the largest ports and more or less bring them offline, at least for a limited period. If there's only one you do it with, goods will still flow to your supermarkets. Nobody will know the difference. The only reason people noticed a difference during the pandemic was the sheer magnitude of the disruption, everything compounding on top of each other. That was beyond what the system was geared to cater for. So coming back to this, the, the world is unstable and unpredictable, but that's exactly why the supply chain is set up the way it is, to handle that level of instability. So Lars, let's, let's, let's put that in perspective so the, the viewers and, and the listeners can understand this. So what we're saying is the normal supply chain, including maritime, has some variability, which is why supply chain is exciting because your job as a business leaders, practitioners, supplier or distributor, or even recipient of the goods or services, your job is to manage the variability within normal boundaries. Yes. Point well taken. But what about COVID obviously exposed some of the structural deficiencies that we have today. Geopolitical, specifically, let's talk about the Europe, Russia, Ukraine, and potentially few others that growing up on the horizon, including uh, China, Taiwan, to name just a few. Mm -hmm. How do you view that within the scope of what you define normal? I view it from the perspective that the impact, especially of some of the things you mentioned there, is going to be less than you might imagine. Let's try to take them one by one. Let's take the Russia-Ukraine war to start with as it's unfolding right now. Again, remember, I see this from the container shipping perspective. This might sound harsh, but the Ukraine-Russia war has very, very limited impact on the global supply chain for containers for a few reasons. First of all, the amount of cargo in containers that move in and out of both Ukraine and also the European part of Russia is very, very limited. From a global perspective, it's not nothing, but it's not really material. The second part, the global container supply chain is a hub and spoke. So you build it up around a few key nodes, just as when you fly somewhere, you typically go through a couple of major nodes. None of those key hubs are in Ukraine or Russia. Ukraine and Russia are at the very end of the supply chain. So any disruption there impacts those countries, but there are no real ripple effects. The main ripple effect you had over on the rest of the supply chain was indirect. In the early parts of the war, you saw significant increases in fuel oil prices, for example. That has an indirect impact, but that's about it. The other one you mentioned, what about say China, you mentioned China, Taiwan. Before we get to that one, let's look at what happened just a few years ago. The US 
went into a trade war with China. Now, did that have a massive supply chain impact? In reality, it didn't. If you look at what happened at the time, yes, there was a dip. There was a decline in the amount of cargo shipped from China to the US. But that was supplanted by cargo that was then shipped from Southeast Asia into the US. And seen from a supply chain perspective, it doesn't really matter whether I need my big ship to pick up the cargo in Shanghai or I need to pick it up in, say, Vietnam. It's still the same big ship. So the supply chain is very much geared to handle quite a number of these different disruptions. So Lars, you, you, you're absolutely correct in terms of the, the cross-continent cargo movement continues in spite of this potential geopolitical threat, right? Mm -hmm. It may change, uh, and you mentioned, uh, it may change the volumes coming out of Shanghai to let's say West Coast versus Vietnam into the West. Uh, at that point, it could be East or middle part of the country and potentially some to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. So it does have from, from the ground perspective outside of your maritime industry, this uh, notes, the hub and spoke you talked about, shifting them from one location to the other. On the ground side, the middle mile and the last mile deliveries, it suddenly has a huge impact because as you've seen, we are trending at about 30% less volume on the West Coast ports this time. And obviously you, the port... You, you are, but the interesting thing about the cargo flows into the US West Coast has less to do with geopolitics, but is much more driven by some of the ripple effects domestically in the U.S. coming out of the pandemic. Uh, once the pandemic struck, maybe we should just look at some of the dominoes that caused all the supply chain disruption, especially in the U.S., if we take that one as a starting point. It was almost like, let's call it a predictable train wreck in slow motion. Uh, stage number one, China gets COVID. So China factories stay closed longer than normal. This happened during Chinese New Year in 2020. Well, that means there's not a lot of cargo moving out of China, so the shipping lines cancel sailings. That makes sense. There's no cargo to move. Then China reopens. Now we are in mid-late February 2020. All of a sudden, all the cargo that didn't get moved has to be moved at the same time. That can be done because all the ships are just lying idle off the Chinese coast, let's say. So now you've got a huge wave of cargo that starts to move from China towards both North America and Europe because suddenly everything is open. But ships take a long time to arrive at destination. So before they arrive at destination, COVID spreads through the rest of the world. So by the time the vessels arrive, North America and Europe are essentially shut down. So nobody wants to take delivery of the cargo. They will say, well, we don't have anybody buying stuff. We don't have anybody working. So the cargo is just piled up in the ports, creating a massive congestion bottleneck. To make matters worse, People then find out they're stuck at home. So you couldn't spend money going to restaurants and bars and travels. So you buy stuff online instead, especially in the US. So now, and here we get into late summer 2020, there's a genuine tsunami of cargo coming into the US ports, which were already overwhelmed in the first uh, instance. This creates bottlenecks now on the US side. It takes a long time to work through. This is why you ended up with 100 vessels in a queue, because this is not because the US ports are inefficient per se. 
but a port is designed for a stable flow. A port is not designed to be a storage yard for enormous amounts of cargo that doesn't get picked up. The problem was not the efficiency of the ports. The problem was on the land side that the importers did not pick up the cargo with the same pace as it was delivered. Why did the importers not pick it up? There were multiple reasons. Some of that was a shortage of trucking. Some of it was a shortage of chassis. Some of it was a shortage of warehousing space. But all of these were domestic issues in the US that was really unrelated to anything geopolitically. As the West Coast congestion got worse and worse, a number of US importers looked, of course, for what can be done. And one place that was not as heavily congested was the US East Coast. So for some of the companies, it made sense. Let's reroute the cargo to the East Coast instead. So you see a big decline in cargo going to the West Coast, an increase to the East Coast, and lo and behold, you get congestion on the East Coast. Once you get congestion on the East Coast, that impacts your transatlantic cargo. So now suddenly the Atlantic gets congested as well. Gradually, the West Coast congestion eases during last year, which is great, but the cargo didn't swing back because a lot of the importers, they remember what I spoke about before 2015, labor disputes, the inability to find an agreement between the terminals and the port workers union. That is still the case. So for a lot of the importers, they hedge their bets and say, well, we're not going to swing the cargo back to the West Coast until this is resolved. That was an extremely long answer to a short question. But 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 maybe boiling it back down to the question, a lot of the supply chain problems, not all of them, but a lot of the supply chain issues you have seen, especially in the US, the root cause is to be found domestically in the US and uh, not so much in geopolitics. Stay tuned for the next demystifying discussion on the supply chain. Visit uscsupplychain.com to stay up to date on all things supply chain.